Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. You know, it's funny the things that you remember from your childhood. Uh, you know, some of the times that I remember my mom laughing the hardest was when she was watching the old Carol Burnett show. And uh, for that reason, I think I still have a fondness for Carol Burnett. Some of you are probably too young to remember her show of comedy sketches during which uh, the actors themselves were unable to keep it together because they were so funny. And one of the most well-known series of sketches that appeared on that show uh, was one that featured Carol Burnett playing a character named Eunice. Eunice Higgins, uh, pictured here. Uh, on the screen. Carol Burnett just had a way of, of, of morphing herself into all of these crazy characters. Uh, but Eunice uh, was one of the favorite characters that she played. She was married to Ed Higgins, who worked in a hardware store, who was played by Harvey Corman. Also featured in these sketches was her aging mother, Thelma Harper, played by Vicki Lawrence. And for those of you that aren't familiar with the sketches, uh, Eunice desperately wanted to be out of Raytown, where her family lived and escaped to Hollywood to become famous. But Eunice completely lacked talent. And so she was stuck in Raytown. And as a result, she was full of bitterness and self-pity and spite. Uh, she was deeply envious of her sister Ellen, played by Betty White, for being the favorite of their mother, Thelma. She's unhappy in her marriage. She held grudges over every perceived slight, whether real or imagined. And she took delight in the misfortunes of the rest of her family members, often taking advantage of airing all the dirty laundry in public, revealing all of these layers of family dysfunction. And you're probably listening to the description, looking at that picture and wondering, how can these possibly have been funny? They actually sound tragic. And of course, there is an element of tragedy uh, in these sketches of Eunice and the family. But the humor lies in our ability to relate to all of it. Because let's be honest with ourselves, we're all dysfunctional. We all come from dysfunctional families and we all have dysfunctional relationships. This is what sin does. So much so that that some of you, I'm sure, dread these family gatherings through the holidays because it just forces you to confront the reality of that dysfunction over and over again. But you know what? The Bible doesn't deny or hide from those realities that we experience. In fact, the Bible portrays rather consistently family dysfunction. And it's honest about those things. But at the same time, in portraying that family dysfunction, it points us to the path of healing and restoration. A healing and restoration that takes place ultimately through the most wonderful gift of God's grace. The sending of His Son, Jesus, into the world through whom we find that restoration. And this morning we're beginning a series of Advent messages um, leading up to Christmas. And the title of this series is Celebrating Jesus, God's Indescribable Gift. That's the the title of the series. We're going to see through the series how Jesus brings hope for the dysfunctional. He brings healing for the broken, comfort for the suffering, and forgiveness for the sinful. And we're going to do this, celebrate Jesus, God's indescribable gift, by looking at the story of Joseph But not Joseph, who was Mary's husband, as you might think for an Advent series, but actually the Joseph all the way back in Genesis. And the reason that we're going to go all the way back to Genesis is because the last quarter of the book is filled with this story of brothers who can't get along with each other. 
and who are estranged for years. And as a matter of fact, the entire book of Genesis is filled with family dysfunction. The whole thing is full of family dysfunction. If you think about how the polygamy in the book mars the marriages and mars the families, you look at sibling relationships. Esau and Jacob, who were twins, had a strained sibling relationship. You think of Isaac and Ishmael as brothers who don't seem to be all that close. And we know that Cain killed Abel, an ominous beginning to sibling relationships in the Bible. And just like these families in Genesis, our families are infested with sin and dysfunction. And one of the reasons that God sent his son into the world was not just to save people from hell, but to restore our fractured and dysfunctional relationships with himself and with each other through the gospel, through Jesus, who we see is God's gift of hope for the dysfunctional. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, God's gift of hope to the dysfunctional. We're going to begin at Genesis chapter 37, which is where the Joseph story begins. And we're going to consider four major features of this chapter. I'll start with the letter D, and the first being dreams. First thing we see is dreams in the first 11 verses. Now we're going to read this section by section. We're eventually going to get through the whole chapter. So rather than standing to read God's word this morning, uh, you may remain seated. And we're just going to read the first 11 verses of Genesis chapter 37. They're displayed here on the screen for you. Hopefully you can see those. It's a little small. Um, but here now, the word of God, the first 11 verses uh, from Genesis 37, and then we'll pray. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, which is a name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we acknowledge our dysfunction and our need for hope in the midst of it. So open our eyes and our ears to your gift of hope to us this morning through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dreams will figure very prominently in the Joseph story as a whole, as we will see. But there are some important details given here at the beginning of chapter 37 before we even get to the dreams. When we first meet Joseph, he's a 17-year-old boy who's pasturing flocks with the sons of Bilhah 
and Zilpah. Now, those are two of Jacob's four wives. Remember, Jacob had four wives. These are two of them. The other two are Leah and Rachel. Rachel is Joseph's mother. And so these that he's pasturing in the fields with are his half-brothers. They're brothers of another mother, but they are his half-brothers. And we read that Joseph brings a bad report about them to his father, Jacob. Now, we're not told what this bad report is, but there is a suggestion that there's some ill intent on Joseph's part here. And that's because the same word translated bad report in Proverbs chapter 10, 18 is rendered as slandered, slander them. It's also the same word used of the report that the spies brought back in Numbers chapter 13 and 14 that discouraged the people from entering the land the first time, which resulted in them wandering the wilderness for 40 years. That discouraging report is the same word used here about Joseph's bad report. So it's not necessarily that we should conclude that the report is false. It may very well be a true report that Joseph gives about his brothers, but he doesn't seem to be sharing this news with his father for his brother's benefit. And making matters more volatile in this sibling situation, it's obvious that Joseph is Jacob's favorite son evidenced by this robe of many colors that we read about in verse 3 as a sign of his father's affection. So there's this bad report, there's this robe of many colors that we read about before we even get to the dreams. Notice that after the report, that the next time we read about Joseph's brothers being out in the field, Joseph is no longer with them. Perhaps he's being pampered in his dad's house, sitting on the couch in his fancy robe away from his brothers, possibly being protected from them. But the probable tension and perhaps the competition that we would expect between siblings of different mothers in the same household is actually exaggerated now by parental favoritism before we even get to the dreams. In fact, this has already produced the ire of Joseph's brothers. They can't stand him. They hate him. In fact, they can't even speak peace to him literally. When we read in verse 4 that they can't speak peacefully to him, it's that they can't say the word shalom to him, the Hebrew word for peace. They, they, they can't even give a standard greeting of shalom, peace to him, because this peace has been disrupted by sin. And there's dysfunction that's present here before we even get to these dreams. Now, something that might be helpful for us to remember here is that Jacob experienced the same favoritism in his own household growing up. His brother Esau was the favorite of their father Isaac, while he was the favorite of their mother Rachel. So he's our, or Rebecca. He's our, um, yeah, Rebecca was the mom. He was the favorite of his mom. And so he's grown up with this, and now he just kind of passes it along, right? Because that's what we do. Isn't it true that a lot of our shattered shalom and the dysfunctional relationships we have in our life are kind of inherited from our families? from our upbringing, possibly the unreasonable expectations of performance and grades that our parents placed upon us, or the feeling that we just weren't good enough, not smart enough, not athletic enough, or perhaps we're children from broken homes, our parents were divorced, and all these things can leave us with our own personal insecurities, our tendency toward perfectionism, people-pleasing, fear of commitment, conflict avoidance, our own patterns of practicing verbal or physical abuse. These all kind of stem from us, from our families. Now, this isn't to absolve us of personal responsibility of the sinful choices we make. It's just to say that we shouldn't observe and understand our dysfunction in a vacuum. Our families serve to shape both our virtue 
and our vices. Isn't that true? That's the way God has made us. We're connected to each other. And a lot of the garbage that we deal with in our family sticks with us, and we end up struggling with it for a long time. We are the way we are, good and bad, in large part because of the families that we are a part of. And that doesn't absolve us from our sins and the sinful choices we make, but God knows that. He understands the baggage that we struggle with as a result of choices we may not have actually made for ourselves. But then to top it all off, we read about this dream in verse 5 that Joseph has. In fact, he has two dreams of exaltation. And we'll see that actually double dreams are a reoccurring theme in the Joseph story. Now, in the first dream, his brother sheaves all bow down to Joseph's sheaf. And in the second dream, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars all bow down to him, representing his father, his mother, who's not even alive at this point anymore, and his 11 brothers are all bowing down to him. But, but think about this. Jacob's, or Joseph's bad report and his robe of many colors has already led to his brothers hating him. And so now he has these two dreams of impending exaltation. And what does he decide to do? He decides to tell his brothers about the dreams. Not just once, he tells both dreams to his brothers. Now, isn't it, we, we tend to have this, this view of Joseph as a godly, blameless, obedient son. And while that's possible, it's also possible to see it another way. And actually, I, I tend to lean toward this other interpretation. At the beginning of the story, Joseph's kind of a snotty, spoiled, brash, cocky, 17-year-old kid who relishes the opportunity to rub his brother's noses in his dreams of impending glory. He, he relishes the chance to do this, perhaps. And while we can't be sure that this is exactly what's going on here, in any event, his preparation is going to be long and hard because he may not be ready for the glory that God has in store for him. He may not be ready to handle that kind of glory. And that preparation will be long and hard. Even his father questions the second dream because it would have been very rare for a father to bow before his son in ancient Near East culture for any reason. And so he keeps these things in mind. Much like another parent will keep things in mind of promises of impending glory for the child that's about to be born to her. Remember the angel speaks words of the glory that will belong to her son and she ponders these things in her heart. When Mary hears, hears these things, she ponders these things in her heart, her heart about Jesus. And we see Jacob kind of doing that here. He's, he's pondering these things in his heart as Joseph says these things. But while Jacob, his father, ponders, his brothers simmer. And they simmer with hatred, jealousy, and disdain. So that's the next thing that we see, is the disdain of Joseph's brothers. So let's pick up the reading in verse 12 then. Now his brothers went to pasture their flock, their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. And so he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man, and a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. 
So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and then we'll see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard of it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to, the, to, the, to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Now just as some background here, Jacob's family are shepherds. And shepherds typically lived in tents and had to move locations when the water and the grazing became light. So they had to move. And so at this point, they've moved on to Shechem from the Valley of Hebron, which is about 50 miles north. And so Jacob, not having easy observation of them, wants to send Joseph to see if they're okay. In other words, to check on their shalom is the word that's used. To check on their well-being is to check on their shalom. And he decides to send Joseph to do this. And we, we can kind of stop and wonder, what is Jacob thinking at this point in time? Is he completely unaware of the lack of shalom that exists between Joseph and his other sons? Or is he trying to repair the relationships here? We're not quite sure, but he sends Joseph. And Joseph, for his part, is willing to go. Now, of course, notice that he puts on his robe of many colors in order to go see how his brothers are doing. And so as he goes, he starts wandering in the fields. He can't find them because they're not in Shechem like he originally thought that they were. And so he finds this unnamed person who aids him because this unnamed person overheard that they were going to Dothan. And so then Joseph makes his way to Dothan to find his brothers. And he does find them. And when his brothers see him coming from a long way off, they hatch a plan to kill him. Now here comes this dreamer. Here's our chance to get rid of him. We're going to kill him. That's how much they have disdain for Joseph, their brother. But the oldest son, Reuben, argues for his life to be spared instead and to be thrown alive into this pit. So that's what they do. They strip him of this robe, they throw him down in a hole, and they sit down and eat their Jimmy John's for lunch. I mean, that's how, that's how callous their hearts are. They can just treat this like any ordinary day after conspiring to kill their brother and instead just send it, throwing him into a hole. They sit down and they eat their lunch. Now, there is some irony here. Because the day is coming that we'll see where Joseph's brothers actually have to bow before him, as his dreams suggest, and ask him for food because they won't have any. But those roles are not yet reversed. Joseph is down in this hole, and then a caravan of traders begins to pass by on its way to Egypt. And this is apparently while Reuben is somewhere else because he'll come and discover later that Joseph is gone. So apparently while Reuben is away, Judah, one of the other brothers, suggests that they sell him. And why not? He asks, what profit is it 
for us to kill him. I mean, here they can get rid of their brother, their hands are clean of his blood, and they pocket some cash. That's perfect. And so that's what they do. They sell him to these traders, and Joseph's on his way to Egypt. Now, as we think about this disdain, here's what we need to consider. Remember that this is not just a bunch of guys who have no knowledge of the true God, who have no knowledge of the Holy One of Israel. These are the 12 patriarchs. These are the forefathers of the covenant people. These are our spiritual ancestors. And you know what? We mimic their dysfunction. We do. I know that all of us immediately want to read the story and identify with Joseph, the victim. That's me. I'm Joseph in the story. But you know the truth is? Sometimes, sometimes, we're the older brothers in the story who are acting out of hatred and envy and cruelty. Now, it's true, we may not try to kill people. We may not sell them as slaves. But we do cast them in the pit of our rejection and our anger and our hostility and our abuse, our jealousy. And we can just try to get rid of them with our coldness hoping that they'll just go away. And in those ways, we, we hate people around us. So we have to acknowledge that sometimes we share the disdain of these brothers here, and we need to acknowledge that. We're slow to admit that we have this kind of dysfunction because it doesn't sound good. So we try to cover it up with various cosmetics. We try to cover it up very much like Joseph's brothers do with various kinds of deceit. So that's a third major theme we see running through this chapter, as well as through the whole Joseph story. And that's deceit. We see this in verses 29 through 35. <clears throat> we'll pick up our reading in verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? And then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. And thus his father wept for him. <clears throat> well, they obviously can't tell their dad when they get back that they sold his beloved Joseph as a slave to some passing traders going by. And so they decide to kind of carry out this story and make it look like this actually happened. They take the coat off of him that he was wearing, his coat of many colors, unmistakably Joseph's, and they dip it in goat's blood. Then they bring it home to him and just basically ask him to assess the evidence. Do you recognize this? Without actually telling a lie. They just are kind of deceptive in the whole thing. Do you happen to know whose this is? And it's Joseph's robe with goat blood all over it. Now, know that there's more irony here because Jacob is the deceiver. He's kind of born as a deceiver. There's a lot of deception that he practices in his own life. And now Jacob, the deceiver, 
who once deceived his brother Esau out of the blessing of their father Isaac by deceiving Isaac by wearing a coat of fur to make it seem like he was Isaac and a boiling a dead goat to make it look like Esau had, or to make it seem like he was Esau. Remember, Esau was hairy, so he wears this coat and he boils a dead goat for their dad, Isaac. And now, isn't it ironic that this deceiver is now deceived himself by a coat and a dead goat? I mean, this is literally what comes around, goes around. This is a literal example of reaping what you sow. And that's what the New Testament tells us. It says, God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. And so it's good for us to pause and consider, what are we sowing in our lives? Are we sowing anger and disdain and deception and jealousy and strife? Because those things will come back to us in due season. We will reap what we sow as Jacob does here. But like any father who believes his son is dead, he goes into mourning. But this is a particular kind of mourning. Ordinarily, in this culture, there would have been a, a period of days of mourning, of dressing like you're mourning and then moving out of those days. But Jacob seems to take a vow here that those days are never going to end for him. He refuses to be comforted by the remaining sons and daughters he has, and he says, I'm going to go down to my grave mourning. Another indication that Joseph was his favorite. And with Joseph gone, nothing else matters and no one else matters. We're going to see how this affects Judah maybe a little bit next week. But Jacob imagines surely that Joseph is dead. But in the meantime, we are told that these dreams are not dead. Joseph is actually alive, and he's arriving safe and sound in Egypt. We read this in verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to, Pot to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And although he's not mentioned in the chapter, God is at work through all of this. God is still ruling, and God has a plan. So the last thing we need to see here is that there's divine design. All of this is happening according to divine design. Now, we can see this divine design so much clearly when we look at the Joseph story as a whole. But even here, Notice how much stuff has to happen at exactly the right moment, exactly the right sequence, at exactly the right place for any of this to actually be happening. God has to give Joseph these dreams. He has to decide to tell his brothers. His brothers have to respond with envy and spite and hatred. Jacob has to inexplicably send Joseph to check on the shalom of his brothers. Joseph has to be willing to go. When he gets there, Reuben has to stand up and argue for his life to be spared. The other brothers have to listen. Reuben has to at some point be gone for an unexplained reason when Judah hatches the idea to sell him to a group of traders who just happen to be passing by at that exact right time when Joseph is in the pit. That exact time, that exact place, heading to Egypt of all places. All of this has to happen, and it is happening according to God's design. We even get a hint of maybe God preparing for all this and orchestrating all of this well ahead of time by a very passing comment we get a few chapters earlier in Genesis chapter 35, verse 22. Listen to this, very passing comment. While Israel, and that's referring to Jacob here, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel, or Jacob, heard of it. So just a very passing comment, but it might help explain 
It's speculative, but it might help explain why is Reuben doing what he's doing in, in sparing Jacob's, or Joseph's life anyway? Why is he the one that stands up? Is Reuben just trying to get back in his dad's good graces? By sparing the favorite son so that he can present Joseph back to him alive, tell him the whole story, hey, the rest of them wanted to kill him, but I spared him? Is that what's going on here? Well, we can't know that for certain. It's speculative, but maybe, maybe God is just orchestrating all of this through all these kinds of things, down to the details and even down to sinful kinds of actions. It's all according to divine design. But what we can know for certain is that God is at work here to bring about salvation and life for Jacob's family. That's his design, to bring salvation and life. And not just to Jacob's family, his plan is to bring salvation and life to the whole world, as we'll see later in the Joseph story, when there's a famine and no one has any food. So we need to be encouraged by that. That God's design is to bring salvation and life. But we also need to notice that God's design usually doesn't eliminate experiences of dysfunction, suffering, pain, or injustice. It doesn't. We need to affirm that this is all God's plan and purpose and according to his design, but it doesn't bypass dysfunction and suffering and pain and injustice. This story teaches us that. Joseph could not have accomplished God's purposes for him or he could not have enjoyed the anticipated glory to come that we, that we read about of his dreams had he remained comfortable sitting in his dad's house in a robe of many colors. He couldn't, have, he couldn't have experienced that glory. And neither can you, and neither can I. We can't experience the glory that God has for us if we're primarily committed to our comfort, escaping the messes in us and around us. Because you know what? We're not called to comfort. That is not God's call upon our life, to be comfortable. In fact, he calls us to take up a cross and follow Jesus. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like it's comfortable. We're not going to remain faithful disciples for very long if our priority is comfort. But instead, God's design involves dealing with the dysfunction in us and around us. Because it's through all of those things, through the mess, through the suffering, through the pain, that God sanctifies us and calls us to lean upon him as our hope to look to his grace to deal with those things rather than look to ourselves for deliverance and for strength. But the truth is God weaves all of this together. He weaves the suffering together and even our sinful choices, he all weaves into his good, perfect, wise, loving plan. Even when we can't see that that's what's happening. Even when we don't understand it, because they don't understand anything that's going on right now. They just live in the dysfunction and in the mess of all of this. But this gives hope. The fact that God can weave all of this together, our suffering, our pain, our dysfunction, that he can weave it all together gives hope to the dysfunctional. People like you and me. It gives us hope. Listen, I know that you have family and relational dysfunction in your life. Some of you have shared it with me. So I know you have it. For some others, I can see it. And I can hear it. In the way that you act toward each other. In the way that you speak toward each other. 
And the reason I can see it and hear it is because I know what it looks like and I know what it sounds like from my own life and my own relational dysfunction that I experience. We all have it. But listen, God is able to overcome the biggest messes in your life right now. He is able to overcome the severity of whatever dysfunction that you're dealing with in your family, in your church, or in your heart, according to his love and his grace and his good and perfect design. He can do this not just for Jacob and his family. He is powerful enough to do it for you. And he can redeem your worst mistakes and your most shameful sins. That's what he does here in the story of Joseph. He redeems those shameful sins and awful mistakes and this disdain and deceit and all of it. He brings good and beauty out of it. A couple commentators named Ian DeGuid and Matt Harmon wrote a book on the Joseph story. It's called Living in the Light of Inextinguishable Hope. And I'll be borrowing from this commentary a lot through this series, but I want to share with you something that they say. Uh, They ask, how could a God who acts sovereignly in all circumstances not be at work for good in the storms of your life? He may be at work in painful ways. He will not always restrain the sins of others against you, nor your sins against others. Our dreams for this world may be shattered, but only so that God can bring something purer and richer out of the broken pieces. Do you believe that? Are you clinging to that hope this morning in the midst of your mess and dysfunction that God will bring something purer and richer out of those broken pieces? Well, we can hope in that because he does it here in the Joseph story. But even more, we can have hope in that because he sent his only son, a greater Joseph, Jesus, into the world to be born. That's what we're celebrating during Advent. And Jesus came and willingly surrendered his robes of glory, not just to check on our shalom, but to restore the shalom that we had lost through sin. And while while Jacob did not know what would happen to his beloved Joseph when he sent him to check on his brothers, our Heavenly Father knew precisely what would happen to his son when he came into the world. He knew exactly what we would do, that we would reject him, that we would strip him of his garments, that we would place upon him a royal robe to mock him and then crucify him so that we could kill him. And there'd be no Reuben to stand up and argue to spare his life. And there'd be no divine hand that would prevent Jesus from dying. Jesus does what Joseph doesn't do. Jesus willingly lays down his life on the cross so that those who rejected him could know forgiveness And so that their dysfunction could be overcome by his shalom. The shalom that Jesus alone can bring because he's the prince of peace. He's the prince of shalom. And that's our hope. I know for some of you the dysfunction and the mess runs deep. But look to Jesus. Look to Jesus in hope. Confess that dysfunction and that mess. Lay it before him and bow your hearts and your lives before him, before whom all the stars and the sun and the moon truly bow. And know that his grace is more powerful than your sin and your mess and your dysfunction. There's hope because Jesus is God's gift of hope for the dysfunctional. 
and in looking to him, may you know his shalom this season and at all times. And may your family know his shalom. May the church, and specifically this church, know his shalom. And may through our knowing it, may the whole world through our witness come to know the shalom of the Prince of Peace, who is God's gift of hope for dysfunctional people like you and me. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge the dysfunction in us and around us, in our relationships, and we need hope that it can be overcome. And we thank you for sending Jesus into the world to set things right, to restore peace and harmony in our hearts and in our relationship with you and our relationship with others. Give us grace that that might be increasingly manifested as we look to Jesus as our hope. All our hope is in you, Jesus, our Messiah and our King. For it's in your name we pray, amen.